Joan Bowditch is the Artistic Director and CEO of Arts Access Victoria, Melbourne, and the creative lead of the Alter State Festival. Caroline enjoyed an acclaimed career in the UK for over 16 years as a performance maker and industry leader. She was Scottish Dance Theatre's Dance Agent for Change and worked extensively with Paragon Music, Dance Floor and Imaginate. Caroline was visiting professor at Coventry University and has been a regular consultant on accessibility and inclusive practice to Skorna's Dance Theatre, Sweden and the British Council. Performance works include Falling in Love with Frida 2014, which won a Herald Angel Award, and the children's works The Adventures of Sniggle and Sniggle and Friends. Caroline returned to Australia in 2018 to lead Arts Access Victoria, where the aim is cultural equity for all deaf and disabled people. Her strong advocacy has resulted in significant reform of funding programmes for deaf and disabled artists, the development of a new strategic plan, and the creation of Alter State, a brand new four-week inclusive festival which was just coming to an end when we spoke early in October 2022. Caroline, thanks so much for joining me today. Where am I speaking to you from? Hi Lou, I am coming to you from the unceded lands of the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nations, um, otherwise known as St Kilda in Melbourne, Australia. Um, and I pay my respects to elders past and present um, and any First Nations people who might be tuning in. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, and welcome. So, Caroline, you were based in the UK, Glasgow, to be precise, I think, for 16 years before you headed back to Australia in 2018 to take up your role as Chief Exec Officer at Arts Access at Victoria. And reading your biogs from across the years, I see you regularly, <coughs> excuse me, regularly describe yourself as both a whirring wasp and a buzzing mosquito flying in the ears of the arts industry. So I wanted to start by asking you about your journey and what it means to be and need to be both a wasp and a mosquito. Um, thanks, Lou. I don't know that I've ever described myself as a wasp, but that's really interesting. It's and says it's much so in one of your biogs. Does it? it does, yeah, but mm. maybe somebody else wrote that and didn't ask you <laughs> approval. That was just their description. Maybe they felt the brunt of <laughs> yes. my sting. Maybe, maybe um, so. I've, yeah, I've definitely described myself as a mosquito, as a kind of, I suppose, a bit of an irritant to the, or an agitator in the arts um sector one that wouldn't go away and continued to ask questions that for a long time i thought were really annoying to people but actually um i've learned that that was my own um perception people mm. were very up for being asked those questions and it was really important to assist in the change process i think um i also read this amazing quote which is where the thought came from really um that can be kind of attached to lots of people everyone from the Dalai Lama through to Anita Roddick is kind of uh <laughs> said to have said this but um it's that concept of if you think you're too small to make a difference you've never tried to go to sleep with a mosquito in the room um and that is really where that idea came from that thing about we all have the potential for change, it's not about size or connection, but it's about persistence, I would say. 
Brilliant. I've seen you that you've also described yourself as feeling unexpected. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah. So when I um, I did a project in um, Sweden a couple of years ago with a fantastic artist called Luke Pell, who you may have come across, Lou. Um, and we did a project together in Sweden with Skåne's Dance Theatre um, that was called Unexpected Bodies in Unexpected Places. And we worked with a group of 10, oh, there was more than that, there was 22 actually, 22 disabled artists from all over Europe came together in Sweden to work with us for this product project. And we worked with artists um, in the outdoors, I suppose, in a way. So we worked with a group of artists uh, in a skate park and then um, in a park park uh, by uh, a big body of water in Malmo in Sweden mm. and also in and around the building at um, Skåne's Dance Theatre. And it was this idea about where do we have permission as people with visibly disabled or what some people might perceive as disturbing bodies, um, where do we or don't we have permission to be and where are we or aren't we expected? And I think that's something else that I experienced coming into this role as CEO at Arts Access Victoria mm. um, was I was meeting lots of other CEOs, but none of them looked like me. So there was this sense of... Um, as a wheelchair user, as someone who's short, um, I that's not the image that we conjure up when we conjure up an image of a CEO. Um, so in some ways I, w I had that feeling that I was quite unexpected um, in lots of those spaces. And it was interesting recently, I one of the first kind of events post uh, the pandemic, well, post all the lockdowns that we had in Melbourne, mm. meeting up with a whole group of those, almost those same CEOs um, two years on. And I felt completely expected and I felt completely welcome and it was a very different feeling. Um, so, yeah, I think that's the kind of unexpectedness. Mm. It's a different feeling because... Um the people you're meeting are changing or because you've been around for a while now and yeah people know you know your work yeah I think it's because I'm I'm much more familiar to people um and I think also people are changing the conversations are different um the places I find myself are different um mm. and that's that's quite exciting. But I think this kind of unexpectedness or unexpected thing has been something that's run through my career. Hmm. Anyway, because as a, whenever I would call myself a dancer, people would kind of go, well, how do you do that? Because I have a non-traditional dance body. Hmm. Um, and so there's always been a questioning about how does this body do that? Thing that we conjure up to look like a specific thing um, and it was always interestingly lots of London cabbies were always fascinated whenever I said <laughs> I'm a dancer or I work in dance or um, and they would kind of say how do you do that so I would just send them to my website and say 
just go and have a look. It's much easier to see it than me to explain it. So. Or to demonstrate it in the back of a cab. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, so that unexpectedness is really um, power, isn't it? Pa- power and potency to, to open up these conversations and, and start to make the change. Yeah. I also think there's a thing about um, I'm really lucky that I uh, am able to catch an accessible tram to get to work. And I often think, um, I wonder how many of the punters on this tram kind of look at me and think, oh, yeah, she must be a CEO on her way to work. Or are they thinking, oh, she must be on her way on a nice day out. Um, I'm always really fascinated to think, I wonder what people perceive of me or Mm. do they just not perceive anything Mm. so you do feel that the um the landscape is changing a bit and and those attending the annual ceo picnic um is becoming a bit more diverse and a bit more uh, appropriate let's say yeah very much so and i i think i've now got really strong friendships with lots of those people um i regularly get bought around that table um, and invited into those spaces to really, I suppose, yeah, to, to bring a different perspective to that conversation. And people are really recognising the importance and significance of um, having disabled people, whether it's me or others, in those conversations, um, mm-hmm. which I think is really significant and is, and is really changing. Mm. So you've spoken in the past about how disabled people sometimes need to do a lot of the heavy lifting. So they're expected to be educators as well as collaborators and need to be leading and creating change as well as doing their job. Um, do you see change there then within leaders as well as within artists and and with the collaborations that take place? Yeah, I think so. I I mean, there's still... There's still a lot of work to do and it's really interesting to, um, I'm working with a fantastic collaborator at the moment who actually was the uh, prior CEO at Arts Access Victoria, Veronica Pardo, who was the one who really strategically um, created a space for the authentic leadership at Arts Access and Mm. she did that by stepping aside basically. but working alongside Veronica, who uh, is incredibly wise um, in the cultural diversity space, there's so much that is that runs in parallel between kind of um, ableism and racism and mm. that kind of um, cultural diversity and disability space. And the thing that I'm really learning from Veronica and lots of the readings that she's given me to do is specific words that I've never had for the things that I do. So it is things like cultural load. It is things like identifying that I am constantly doing two jobs, which yeah. I am at the moment. But but there is always that thing about I am being CEO, but then I am also being a role model and I'm also, yes, being a leader and I'm also being an educator, all those other things. Um, along the way, which I think comes with leadership anyway. Um, so it just, it's, it is really interesting to acknowledge that 
like there's something very empowering about acknowledging that that's happening and um, being able to step back from that and just kind of go, actually, right now, this is too much. There's too much emotional labor actually wrapped up in this because I was on a panel with a fantastic First Nations um, man a couple of years ago and he just said, you know, for lots of people um, that work in diversity, in inverted commas, um, for lots of them, not so much in the UK but quite a lot in Australia, many of them kind of, it's a nine to five job. So they go to work and they work in diversity and then at five o'clock that switches off. But Hmm. if you are someone that is also living with disability or as a First Nations person, it doesn't switch off. It doesn't, there is no anonymity when (laughs) when the clock strikes Hmm. five. Like I remain disabled. That person remains First Nations in a kind of Hmm. explicit way and therefore it's constant unless I'm within the walls of my home in a way. Um, so yeah, it's pretty constant. Can I ask you a question? Um, oh, well, that's why we're here, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I recently did some work with the marvellous Stopgap here in the UK and Amazing. was interested in, in considerations they had around, in terms of language, in terms of becoming an anti-ableist as opposed to a non-ableist organisation. Mm. I wondered if that has any meaning for you. Yeah, I mean, the fascinating thing, Louise, I'd never heard the word ableism until I was about 40, so until about 10 years ago. Um, Even though I'd lived in the UK and had kind of very much been introduced to the social model of disability, which I hadn't really known about until I was 30. Mm. Um, So when I moved to the UK in the early 2000s, the social model was like, oh, my God, this amazing, amazing liberated thing and put so many things in place for me. And I think now, um, but it was coming back to Australia to deliver some workshops um, around 2016, I think. No, 2014. And I remember another um, fantastic disability advocate, Jack's Jackie Brown talking about this thing called ableism and I remember having to go into the office that I was working in and googling ableism and what it was and I was just like there was something deeply embarrassing about that but also at the same time thinking why haven't I heard that word is it because I am not in environments where I'm experiencing that so it's just not relevant or it's not coming up for me Um, or I'm completely (laughs) closed off from it or not acknowledging it. Um, I didn't really know. So I think, um, yeah, there's something much more active about being anti-ableist as opposed to non-ableist. There's something very, uh, yeah, very proactive about that. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I don't want to speak for them, but that's what I learned from them about in terms of the differentiation between these terms that anti-ableism they were defining as more proactive, more political, making and demanding change outside of the bubble. Um, yeah. Not additional adjustment, but systemic change. And, yeah. and basically being a bit more strident, a bit more feisty and, and calling things out a bit more. Um, yeah. Would you say that's 
where AAV is now? Is that, yeah, okay. Yeah, so I think one of the big things when we um, applied for our last big chunk of money from uh, Creative Victoria, we got really bold and decided that we were going to, um, yeah, I suppose get feisty. And it was mm. a colleague of mine, Fiona Toomey, who really um, encouraged me to go that way. And our vision always has been for cultural equity um, mm. for deaf and disabled people. And we're still trying to define what that is, Lou, mm. um, because you talk about equity with p- different people and everybody in a sense will have their own definition of what that is. Um and how that would, how cultural equity would play out for them. Um, but really our purpose, and this was the feisty bit, is to bring about transformational and systemic change. And mm. so I suppose in that context, we are absolutely working in that anti-ableist space um, very proudly and mm. stridently. <laughs> mm, so, brilliant. yeah. Can you say a bit more then about the work of Arts Access Victoria? I know it was established in 1974 and it's the state's peak body for art and disability. Yeah, tell us a bit more about what you actually do. So we do many, many things. Um, We are both a producer of artwork. So we work with about 80 uh, deaf and disabled artists every week through a number of studios that we run. 80, Um, did you say? 80. Amazing. And then we also have a mentoring program for about 45 artists that we work with, that work one-to-one with a mentor. Um, But we do the matchmaking, as it were, and support Mm. the kind of administration of that mentoring program and ensure that um, the mentors are paid and we support the artists to, um, yeah, to to kind of get closer to their artistic ambitions. Um, We also... uh, do lots of systemic advocacy Mm. so uh lots of so at the moment i am part of um a review panel developing the new national cultural policy Mm. tomorrow i'm going to sit on a round table with the minister for cultural industries in victoria so it's a lot of advising um, and advocacy in those kinds of spaces um and then we just try and profile um connect up, support um, and work with deaf and disabled artists at all stages of their careers, Um, support them to secure funding for artistic programming or projects that they might want to do. At the moment, we are nearing the end of a collaboration that we are doing with Arts Centre Melbourne to produce uh, an arts and disability festival Mm. called Alter State Um, and that's amazing and um, has seen the employment of over a hundred deaf and disabled people across the month um, which is really significant. Um, So yeah we do many things but we work with about 1500 deaf and disabled artists every year um, in a variety of ways and we run some really strategic projects as well like the other film festival um, which is has an online offer at the moment as part of Alter State in the Flaunt program where people can go and access eight amazing disability-led films um, produced in Australia. Um, yeah, we just, so that's one of our flagship projects, but 
yeah, we just do a myriad, a myriad of things. As you say, everything, really. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you were the creative lead or you are the creative lead on Alter State. Uh, and that's, this is the, the second time it's run? We had a digital launch last yeah. November, yeah. Um, but this is the first kind of in-person hybrid festival. Great. And you're just coming to the end of it now. We're just beginning week four. So, um, yeah, we've got six days left. Okay. And how's that been? It's been amazing. Um, it's sparked many interesting conversations. It's attracted a hugely diverse audience. Um, we, the whole festival, almost all the festival has been delivered as a hybrid offer. And we, it's been really clear to us that um, a large majority of our audience is still not ready to mm. come back to in-person presentation. So, um, yeah, the vast majority of people have joined um, a lot of the offers online. Um, yeah, but it's just been amazing. The whole thing, um, taking the example from the fabulous Jess Tom, um, the whole festival has been relaxed. Um, there's been a quiet space uh, in place. Um, every performance has been Auslan interpreted. Uh, every performance has had audio description. Every performance has had captioning where all of these things are relevant. Um, as much as possible has been offered online as well as in person. Um, and it's really interesting because they're not new things, but mm. they're often not seen across in, in a sustained way across a month-long festival. Yeah, um, they're there for specific shows or, yeah. Yeah, so often there'll be an audio described performance at 2 o'clock on a Wednesday or there'll be one in a whole run or whatever. And, and so that's that's been something I've been really, um, yeah, really proud of. And it, it's kind of, I mean, I think that, it's really come from my long involvement with Unlimited at Southbank and seeing the way mm. Southbank adopted it and has done it um, from the very beginning under the amazing supportive and watchful eye of Wendy Martin all those years ago in 2012 mm. um, and continues to do now um, and also because Joverint is there as a real driver of that space as well. So, um, yeah, feels pretty good. Sounds amazing. Um, and, and you as creative lead, is this the biggest thing you've done in that role in terms of curation, bringing all of this together? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the interesting thing about the curation role is that a lot of, um, a lot of the commissioned work was already in play so um, lots of this work was commissioned for 2021 okay. and um, we it wasn't able to be delivered um, because of the nature of it so uh, in a digital form so we've carried that on so I suppose in a way the curation of the work has been quite minimal but the infrastructure that sits around it in terms of upskilling Arts Centre Melbourne or, or really bringing Art Centre Melbourne's focus into how to lead and run an accessible festival. Mm. Um, I think that's been more of the work, really looking at 
how do we make the way that we're working through alter state what they call business as usual so how can we be embedding this way of working across the whole organization um and really looking at their systems and how they're established and how they might be problematic and how they can be fixed and all of those sorts of things. So it's got this amazing front of it's a festival, come and see the art. But then behind the scenes, there's so much work that's being done um, at the art centre by the whole team. I feel like Alter State has touched every department within Art Centre Melbourne, even though it's sitting within the programming team. Um, so that feels pretty amazing. Yeah, more of that heavy lifting, eh? Um, but, yeah. you know, it, it sounds extremely exciting. And, and so certainly, you know, in years to come for, for Alter State, but also hopefully anyway, it will have made real change and it will be present in everything. That's the, the plan, ambition. Yeah. <laughs> That's the ambition. I was, I was really interested in the principles of Alter State. Um, mm. So I'm going to remind you in case they're not on the tip of your tongue. Uh, equity. Yeah. Disability identity and pride, disability yeah. consciousness, crip time, aesthetics of access, reduced barriers and accountability. I was really sort of moved by the wholeness of that. Um, yeah. How do you, what, what do you have in place to ensure for yourselves that you're adhering to those principles? Yeah, that's a great question, Lou. They are constantly around us. Um, the as creative lead, it was really important that um, that the festival had disability leadership. So we have those amazing principles which came from um, the artists. That I've, I've just been hanging out with a foundation artist today that established those principles. So mm. the amazing Carly Finlay, Rodney Bell, and Joshua Pether and um, they worked with Amania Price and spent a week coming up with those principles and they are just kind of embedded in everything that we do, I think, and they are up and around and they are, are the thing that has been spoken about and reminded to all of the Art Centre staff at throughout the development of Alter State, that this is what we're working to. Um, that accountability piece is really about um, any of the partners that we work with. It's about ensuring that they're also adhering to the principles and um, the conversations are really teasing out that sense of equity and what does that mean. Um, acknowledging the removing or the reducing of barriers originally was removing barriers and what mm. we um, discovered through conversation with the foundation artists was that actually uh, when you put lots of access in place you can come up against access clashes so what might work for one group doesn't necessarily work for others so when we we, rec we recognised that we couldn't remove the barriers completely, but what we wanted mm. to do was absolutely reduce them. And mm. we wanted to reduce as many of those clashes as possible or at least be able to provide um, people with uh, enough information that they could make informed choices about 
what might work for them. Mm. Um, so, yeah, how do they play out? They, I feel like they are just embedded in our being and they are the basis of our conversations and they are the thing that we come back to if we feel like we're straying or we're yeah. not sure. And I'm sure they were They've become a decision-making in... tool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure they were embedded in, in your beings um, to start with, but it's such a great process of working together to articulate them and, as I say, to achieve the sort of the wholeness of them, well, for, for now anyway. Um, mm. So in terms of the of, of barriers, whether they're physical, social, cultural, behavioural or so on, um, as you've said before, and as we know, these can lead to poverty, marginalisation, discrimination and shame. Uh, and of course, COVID has done nothing to help that. Um, I wanted to ask you about content um, and what you're seeing in terms of the content of the work being made and whether it's directly addressing these experiences or not, um, ju just in terms of you know where things are at right now, I suppose it's a bit of a general question. What are, what are artists making work about? I think it depends who you're asking. Um, the work I you've think, seen and, and that you've programmed. Yeah, so um, we programmed a beautiful, very immersive piece that was made called When the World Turns, which was a collaboration between Polyglot Theatre and the fabulous Oily Cart from the UK. Um, and it was just an extraordinary piece of work that was targeted at probably the most marginalised community that people aren't thinking about, and that is um, young disabled people that are perceived to have complex or multiple disabilities. And um, Ellie Griffiths, who's the artistic director of Oily Cart, was so articulate in one of the conversations that we had and was sort of saying one in seven Australian children can be identified as having a disability um, and one in 18 fits within this kind of hugely marginalised groups and there mm. are... Um, there are maybe two companies in the whole of Australia that are making work with wow. these children in mind. And it's when you start putting that in perspective that all of a sudden you just kind of go, what are we doing? And why are we letting the art sector get away with that? <laughs> like when we say this is for everyone or this is access for all. Actually, we're not. We we're not talking about that because, mm. um, and I think this comes back to the reduced barriers. Like, there is nothing in our program specifically targeted at a deafblind audience, other than the programming in the flaunt program um, of a beautiful film called Imagine Touch. So, and these young people came to that event there wasn't necessarily anything else in the program for them. So it's this, it's kind of, it's fascinating. Going back to your question before about, is this the biggest thing I've ever done? Probably it is when you think about making the choice about what you program and what mm. you bring into a festival. Um, 
is a really, really interesting process. Um, so it's my ambition with it was also that people would feel welcome and like they belonged in this mm. space because I think one of the things that we can often find with the disability community is that we're just we are made to feel that we're problematic and it'd be better off if we weren't there and I didn't want anyone to feel that ever <laughs> and I definitely didn't want them to feel it in a in a festival that I was part of leading um so I suppose we've tried to do everything that we could to um extend that welcome to as many people as possible mm. so that people felt uh, like they'd been thought of. Mm. <laughs> Not much to ask, hey? Um, <laughs> I understand, of course, then that the UK and Australia are uh, vast and vastly different places. Um, and I know a comparison would be foolhardy, but I do want to ask you, in what ways the art sectors are different uh, in terms of whether we can learn anything from each other? Because you've got quite an interesting position there being, you know, very familiar with both of them. Yeah. What, what do you think we can learn from each other? So I think the thing that we can learn about Australia is it's a sporting nation. Hmm. And all of our focus and lots of our investment is put into sport. So, for example, when we were in COVID, it was miraculous that we could go to the football, but we couldn't sit in a theatre together. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, it was the art sector in so many places were annihilated through COVID. Um, in Australia, we know that there is minimal investment in deaf and disabled artists, whereas in the UK... We've got a model like Unlimited that shows us that £13.9 million has been invested in disabled artists across 10 years of that program existing. Whereas in Australia, we know that about $250,000, so about $125K um, in pounds, is invested in disabled artists across our vast country. So the whole country? The whole country. <laughs> So when the disability community feels like it's not um, being able to produce or, or there's a perception that we don't produce work that is of a quality or um, really allows us to step out of that community theatre or community performance model, um, I believe it's because people are so good in Australia at making amazing work <laughs> on the smell of an oily rag. And we know that that's the art sector generally, but I think mm. disabled artists are so used to getting the crumbs as they fall off the table and um, not being seen as a priority. I think that's the biggest thing for me, Lou, is that in the UK as a disabled artist, I felt incredibly privileged, but I also felt like a priority. I felt like I had been recognized as an artist that needed to be invested in. Whereas I don't feel that urgency or prioritization at all around disabled artists in Australia. And that's something that I'm really trying to shift the thinking around. Crikey. 
So I, I must admit that I um, that that's really jarring for me because, of course, having prepared for this conversation, I've been really in the world of AAV and feeling so excited about altered state, etc. Um, but that's extraordinary. And it makes me realise, uh, yeah, um, how much work there is to be done. And, and therefore, mm. the, the scale of the mountain that you're climbing is even bigger than I thought. Um, how, how is that for you? I mean, that's you're doing amazing work, amazing things are happening. That's all very exciting. But that must be demoralising. Those figures are, I mean, they're hard to hear. Yeah, I think because this has literally just come out in a research project that we did um, as a result, actually, so those stats are from a few years ago now. So they were 2018 stats. Since mm-hmm. then, we received really significant, a big chunk of money was, um, we got a big chunk of devolved funding from um, the state government to invest in deaf and disabled artists in response to COVID in a way. So we were able to distribute $240,000 directly to deaf and disabled artists. But the ask that we got, Lou, for out of all of the applications that we received was 2.9 million. Mm. So the ask was 2.9 million. Mm. The amount we had to offer was 240,000. So it was a strike rate of about 8%. And that's not good enough for me. Um, And so, but we had some really major wins in that because what we were able to do also was to say, there is a, and I learned this from Creative Scotland, there is um, a, a kind of creative pool of money. So we were able to offer $15,000 grants for the creation of a thing. And then we could offer on top of that another 7500 just for access. So it was separate. It didn't have to mm. come from the artistic budget. And that yeah. has felt really significant and that had never been done yeah, before. And now yeah. it's just part of what happens so it now that's embedded into um creative victoria's kind of application process is you apply for the creative money and your access money separate um so that feels like a big win and i feel like um now is the time to get even more strategic in thinking about where where we need to be investing and how we can draw on other funds. So things like um, how we can be bringing money in from the employment sector, not just the art sector, um, or tourism, not just the art sector. So it's starting to get a bit more strategic Mm. because there's some bigger pools of money there that haven't been tapped. Um, So, yeah, reaching out into those other other pools, I think is my kind of next plan, <laughs> next plan yeah. of action. Yeah, um, sounds like a good one. Um, can I ask you on, on a personal, uh, in personal terms, how, how this is for you uh, in terms of the, the, the cost to you of A, the size of the mountain, but B, you know, you've got several jobs <laughs> all, all rolled in there. How is it for you? It's pretty huge. Mm. And there's some days where it's just... It's not too much, but it's a lot. And Mm. some days I just have to acknowledge that it's a lot. Um, And it's 
the thing, one of the biggest things I miss being back in Australia is I miss the disability community. Even though I'm working and I'm surrounded by disabled people every day, which is incredible, because I have a leadership role, <laughs> um, mm. I'm regularly the one that's asked to solve the problem or find the money or make something happen. And it's really hard to just be friends with someone because mm. actually I'm seen as the solver of many things and there is a weight if I can't solve it um, and a frustration. And mm. um, I think also um, I'm, I'm missing rolling around on a floor in a studio <laughs> um, and that feeling of being an artist. And I think it's when I started this role as CEO, I promised myself that I would continue to lead as an artist. And sometimes that's easier than others. Hmm. And I'm always incredibly grateful when I can be in a studio with people and whether it's supporting them to get closer to their artistic ambition or to feed into a process or just create the space for them to to be doing what it is that they want to do, um, that feels amazing. And mm. I think I try and remind myself that it's all choreography, whatever I'm doing, whether that's a strategic <laughs> plan. It's still just ideas on a page that have to go in an order and some of it's going to have to be taken out. Um, <laughs> I love it. So, but I think I've had to do that for my sanity, like um, because I could forget all about that and I could also forget that I'm good at this. Hmm. Um, I think <laughs> I think when you're in a scenario where there isn't enough money to go around and you've got artists that aren't getting the support that they need or have had their fourth or fifth or sixth <laughs> funding application rejected and, mm -hmm. and you just don't know how to help in that scenario, it's, yeah, it's just like, I wish I could do more. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I just think, I just need to go and be Sniggle. <laughs> I just wow. need to go and find some kids and hang out with them and make stupid noises and forget about everything and just be really present and it'll all be great. Hmm. So let's talk about Sniggle. Um, you are, really, you are a choreographer, a director and a performer and you've made lots of successful works um, for children, Sniggle and Friends being one of them and Falling in Love with Frida among others. Uh, I have a quote here about Sniggle and Friends. Dancer Caroline Bowditch's first creation for Babes in Arms is perfectly realised, a properly delightful experience, a tuneful, gurgling, roly-poly piece of dance theatre. Here is wonder indeed. Which is quite <laughs> nice, I guess. Um, it's the what, what are you driven by as a maker then? Let's talk about that. In terms of what you make and how you make it and also who it's for and where you show it, um, that part of you, what's that all about? I've recently 
again through reflection started to think about myself as a reactionary choreographer so I make the work that I feel needs to be made and mm. um through my collaborations over many years with um Scorner's Dance Theatre um I would go and visit them at least once a year and they would say do you know any good work f- that has diverse bodies in it for children and I was like um not that I've seen yet, but uh, maybe there's some out there. And they would say to me, can you please make some? And it's like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, and so it was really through teaming up with Imaginate and doing 18 months of research of children's work and realising that most of the bodies being presented to young audiences were white, standy, uppy 20-somethings and just thinking oh, my gosh, something has to change. And rather than just sitting back and whinging about it, I thought, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make something. I'm going to do something about it. Um, let me make that work and then see what happens. And so that was really where Sniggle comes from. Sniggle um, is snail in Swedish. And I always had the concept of... When I was on tour with Scottish Dance Theatre, I always travelled with a big red backpack on my back that would looked a little snail shelly, I suppose. And I used to always think when I'm on tour, I feel like I've got my home on my back. Um, and also because I glide, because of my chair, I don't have a footfall. And snails don't have a footfall either. They glide. Mm. Um, so even though I'm quite speedy in my chair, I kind of started to think about this concept of of a snail and my home on my back and I could be at home anywhere so I could be at home anywhere in the UK or in at home in Australia I, I it didn't really matter where I was um so Sniggle that was the concept of Sniggle and there's two versions of Sniggle there's the adventures of Sniggle which is where my chair becomes a big snail shell and that's a a promenade piece that we did at lots of outdoor festivals up and down the UK. And then there's the beautiful Sniggle and Friends, um, which is um, for tiny babies. And Mm. um, I worked with Natasha Gilmore um, from Barrowland Ballet as one of my mentors for that work. And um, because I'd never made work for babies before I didn't know what I was for children I didn't know what I was doing um and so my collaborator Laura Hook and I um just set about um making this work and we we had a baby board Lou because I didn't know we didn't know what we were doing we had a baby board we gathered a group of tiny people up to (laughs) three-year-olds that would come into our rehearsal every week during the making process and we would just try stuff out that we'd been working on and see what sat with them and what didn't and we learned so much through that process I didn't read any child development books but I can now almost pick the age of a baby on site just based (laughs) on their mannerisms it's really funny um and it was just such a joyous piece to do um, because 
babies are non-judgmental. They don't, none of them are processing, none of them are going, you look weird, what's wrong with you, what happened? Like they're not doing any of that. They're just kind of going, this is fun, you make nice noises, it's (laughs) colourful and beautiful, Um, I feel really safe here, I can get to you because you're on a stage that's only 20 centimetres off the ground because it was built um, in proportion to my body. Mm. which makes us at perfect baby height. Um, and Laura did this most extraordinarily beautiful design. So it was like we were in the undergrowth. And I got to work with incredible collaborators who just made made magic come to life. And, um, and we also, one of the things that Laura and I talk about regularly is Yes, we made that show for babies, but mostly we made it for parents and we made Mm. it for parents that might get a diagnosis for their baby at some stage later in their life. And we wanted them to feel that disability is not the tragedy that everybody teaches us it is, that disability is not a bad thing, that it's, it can be joyous and it can be a place of love and happiness and all of those amazing things and we just hope that we planted a little sniggle seed in any of those parents' heads who might get they might their life might change at some point through their baby and know that it's gonna be okay. It sounds so gorgeous. Um <laughs> and now is a sniggle coming back or <laughs> is there other work you want to make I mean you talk about wanting to be in the studio are you going to be yeah so Sniggle currently is in a lot of suitcases <laughs> Sniggle's now on this side of the world so that's super exciting um so Sniggle may emerge at some point um but we're also talking about um making an Australian version of Sniggle uh where I play a pygmy possum <laughs> And um, because they're also tiny and they're endangered and um, Mm. it could be educative (laughs) in a way. Um, So, yeah, we're kind of, we're vaguely thinking about that. Um, But I think for a long time I haven't had the headspace to let my Mm. creative ideas rise to the surface and I think now they're they're not they're emerging (laughs) they're not being held down anymore and I'm starting to really think okay let's um let's apply for some money and get into a studio and just fly some ideas and see what happens and invite some people into that space with us and see what happens and in a way so that I can um begin to find the people that the collaborators that I want to work with, that I want to make work with, because that was always a really big thing in the UK was that I I gathered a family around me of mm. artists that I chose to work with and that I continued to work with in all sorts of ways. And um, I haven't gathered that little posse here yet, but mm. um, yeah, I'm, I'm slowly slowly finding 
finding who who those people might be and mm. how I might bring them in to Exciting. the space. Because that's leadership too, isn't it? it it's yeah. different, but it also, as you say, you want to lead as an artist and to experience what it's like making work there and to find the right people uh, is is going to feed all all elements of your practice, I guess. Plus, it sounds really exciting and like you might have a lot of fun in the studio. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's something to look forward to. Um, what else? What's hap- what else is happening uh, coming up for AAV or for you or more generally that, yeah, that is uh, exciting. Um. So we have got an event uh, on the tenth of December called Snug Rock, which is about a, a relaxed punk festival for young people um it's just a one day thing but it's this idea about um yeah being in a space where people can feel safe and um that is but still engage in some amazing music um so that will be hybrid because everything we do is um so people can join that from wherever they are in the world which will be super exciting i'm just putting together at the moment the artistic plan for um, 2023 and um, at this stage I'm thinking a lot about bringing how can I connect that's really interesting Lou that you talk about you set this podcast up to connect continue to connect with artists and I think Mm -hmm. for me I haven't bought all of myself to AAV yet because I haven't bought my international connections in for people to benefit from so i think i'm very much thinking about how i can how i can do that um how i can continue to wedge doors open for people to come in i've started to think about myself as a door wedge um (laughs) so that that people can Uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah so that people can come through the doors um because i think yeah we need more than them just to be opened yeah I get but it. we need them to be held held yeah. open okay. yeah. sounds brilliant i love the idea of the relaxed punk day sounds suitable <laughs> for someone of my age um caroline it's a total pleasure to meet you and to hear all your wisdom and passion and inspiration thank you so much for making time for us today and good luck with it all thank you so much lou thanks for chatting with me Well, that's it for this episode of Downtime. I hope you enjoyed it. Do listen to the other episodes of both seasons one and two with lots of brilliant artists and arts leaders. And for more information about me, my work, the courses I run and the artists and organisations I work with all through COAD, the Centre of Applied Dramaturgy, go to www.thecoad.org. Thanks for listening. May you be lucky and well enough to have a little inspired downtime of your own.